I'm now okay with the idea that my trauma will never be done. 30 years later, after decades of therapy and self-work and genuine forgiveness, a stage I never once asked of myself but arrived at naturally, I came to this realization. I'd go a month, three months, six months without thinking of it once, and then something would come up and it would once again land heavy in my stomach, closing off my throat. A movie, an Instagram post, a conversation in the DMs, a song. One day I just realized this will always be with me. Logically, I understood this. My old therapist used the word imprint a lot. I was young. It was my first sexual experience and it left a mark. It has influenced every relationship I've ever had, how I thought about love and sex and value and worth, and clouded my judgment for a decade. I became an addict to escape this. I almost lost my life to this. Yeah, it was a big deal. Emotionally, I struggled. I told myself to toughen up, let it go, just be normal. I'd ask myself, what is wrong with me? Why am I not over this yet? Why is this still coming up? The answer, of course, is nothing because it's not the kind of experience you can get over because I still have work to do because trauma is a bitch. It still comes up because someone hurt me in a deeply impactful way, the kind of thing that ripples as far as the eye can see. It is not the only thing or the most important thing or the thing that defines me. I no longer carry it everywhere thanks to therapy, but there's a good chance it will always be with me, continuing to pop back into my line of sight, sometimes for my highest good, sometimes just because trauma is going to trauma, and we can't always control where or why or how it happens. In case you needed to hear this, it does get better, it does get easier, and there is nothing wrong with you either. Welcome to Glorious Professionals, brought to you by GORUCK Media. I'm Jason, here with Emily in Park City, Utah, with our guest today, Melissa Urban. She's the co-founder and CEO of the Whole30 program, six-time New York Times bestselling author, and has been ranked one of the top 100 most influential people in health and fitness. Today, we're excited to talk to her about her personal journey to entrepreneurship, empowerment, community building, rocking, and of course, nutrition. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. I don't think I've ever heard my own words read back to me like that. It was actually quite powerful. Well, I got, I still have goosebumps. <laughs> I'm really drawn when, when people are able to, to share their stories, the hard stuff, because there's a lot of posturing out there about how perfect and easy life is. And it takes a lot to put yourself out there. It takes a lot. And so I, I'm really drawn to your story and I'm excited to get to a lot of it. So let's kind of start with how, how you grew up that, that sort of led to this, where you are now and the ability to influence so many people and, and change so many lives for, for good. Yeah. So I grew up in New Hampshire. My parents were married. My mom stayed home with us. My dad worked sometimes two jobs so that my mom could stay home. I had a younger sister. I was a really good kid. I was smart. I didn't talk back. I didn't act out. I got really good grades. I much preferred reading books to people. And the kind of formative thing I think about when I think about the way I grew up is that I grew up in this huge, um, really tight-knit Catholic Portuguese family. And I was with my uncles and aunts and cousins every single weekend and at every family gathering, and we were really, really close. But what I also remember from that time was the family's belief that if you didn't talk about it, it didn't happen. So any negative things that came up in the family, whether it was a separation or a divorce or an illness, 
were just very much brushed under the rug. That was just how my family chose to deal with things. And so I grew up, you know, really surrounded by this loving, close family, but also not having been modeled how to navigate challenges or difficulty. The way I knew to handle them was just to pretend like they didn't exist. Repress it. Yeah. Mm. Essentially repress it. Yeah. And so what kind of evolved when, when did books stop being the source of your greatest entertainment? And- <laughs> I mean, they didn't for a really long time. Um, I was, I've always been really introverted. I've always felt a little socially awkward. I don't know that necessarily that anyone would have said that I was, but I always felt a little like that. I was, like I said, the smart kid in school, I was in the AP classes, so I wasn't quite in the popular crowd, but I wasn't quite in the nerdy crowd. I kind of just ran my own show. Um, and I just remember being psyched as a kid when I did get in trouble to be sent to my room because it meant that I didn't have to like play with anybody else. I could just read books all day. (laughs) (laughs) Being on the fringe. Yes. My parents realized very quickly that that was no longer actually a punishment for me. So what became the punishment? If anything, um, I would get grounded and they would make me do physical activity. So there was one summer, my junior year where I really was acting out where I painted my entire basement, repainted the whole basement and I had to do it right. Or I had to do it again. So it turned into sort of, okay, now you're grounded and you can't just be in your room. Now you have to rake the lawn or weed the lawn or paint the basement or whatever kind of task mm-hmm. they asked me to do. So when did you, I mean, when did life get a little wilder? It wasn't until I was 16. So, you know, my parents, I knew, were kind of struggling in their marriage. But again, it was something that, like, nobody ever talked about. And we just sort of pretended like it didn't exist. And around the same time when I was 16, I was sexually abused by someone really close to me, someone in the family. And I didn't know how to process it. It was, as you mentioned, my first sexual experience. There was a lot of manipulation involved, a lot of words around love and trust. And, and so it really, I think I, I was so young. I can see that now. Were you groomed? In a way, yeah. From about age 14, there would be these incidents where I would feel uncomfortable, but like there would be other people around or this was someone I trusted. And and so I just sort of brushed them away because I didn't really want to think about perhaps mm-hmm. what the alternative could be. And then there was one weekend when I was 16 that my parents went away and they left me in the care of some family members because I had to work. I had a part-time job at that point. And so it kind of happened over the course of that weekend. Um, And I didn't tell anyone for over a year. I was so ashamed. And I was told that if I told people, they wouldn't believe me, that it was really my fault. I was drinking. Of course, where do you think the alcohol came from? But like, Mm -hmm. it was, it was very much a setup situation. And so I didn't tell anyone for a very long time. And when I finally did tell my parents, I kind of had this like breaking point about a year later when this person came to my house to take me out for a car ride. And I just couldn't do it and finally kind of told my dad what had happened. Um, And my family just didn't handle it well. They did the best they could. I can't imagine as a parent now what that must have been like, but- Your dad didn't get a pipe and go- Well, he actually (laughs) did. My dad was very angry and went over to confront him. And you know what I found out later was very close to like a physical altercation, but- My family was so tight knit and so close, and this would have, of course, been incredibly disruptive to the family. And so what we decided collectively to do was just not talk about it and not tell anyone. Was that actually a conscious decision? It was. You sat around. How how did that happen? I was told that we weren't going to tell anyone because it would destroy the family. Wow. And again, I I have to keep coming back to like, my parents did the best they could. This is 
I have so much, most of the time I have so much grace for how they handled it because it was a difficult situation. And, and my mom didn't have this modeling of navigating challenging times. She was only taught that if you acted like it didn't happen, it didn't exist. And at 16, I also didn't really want to tell anyone because I felt like they would blame me. And I felt like they would say it was my fault and no one ever told me that it wasn't my fault. So it was this kind of perfect storm of everyone wanting the same thing for like really not healthy reasons. Right. And it just kind of doesn't work though. Well, it did not, it very much did yeah. not work. Yeah, mm. it very much did not work. You know, I found myself having to swallow my feelings at family gatherings when he was still there because no one knew he shouldn't be. And my parents didn't set boundaries for me and I didn't set any boundaries for myself. That was when I started acting out. So my grades slipped. I started sneaking out at night. Um, I really, from that point on, tried to find things to take me away from that experience. I wanted out of my own body and my own head. And I tried drinking and that like never stuck. It just didn't work for me. I tried at one point maybe controlling my eating and like that definitely didn't work or didn't stick. And it wasn't until I smoked my first joint at 18 that I was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. Mm. Yeah. And so how, I mean, in terms of self-confidence, it had to be kind of crippling. It was, it was crippling internally, but externally I began behaving somewhat promiscuously and that might sound con like counterintuitive, but I had learned from this experience that my body was not my own, that I didn't really have any right to like say no. And that if I did something such that someone found me attractive, if I dressed a certain way or maybe flirted a little, or my makeup was too heavy that I then owed that person something. I spent like my formative years believing this about my about myself and about sex and relationships. So I began acting out, I guess, as a way to both maybe try to reclaim my story, but it never worked that way. And also just out of this sense of obligation. Um, I think I was really desperate for me to open myself up to someone and for to have that person, that man say, no, 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 like this is, you're worth more than this. I'm going to take care of you. And that like never happened because they were all 18, 20, 22 year old boys, you know, drunk at frat parties. Yeah. They didn't know how to handle that either. No, they did not. No. So, you know, my self-confidence definitely plummeted, but then on the outside, it seemed like I was turning into this rebellious, you know, promiscuous drinking kind of kid, which I had never been. And did you flirt with suicide or taking your own life? No, I never did. Nope. That was, thank God, an ideation that never entered my mind. I cut for a while. I, I sl would slice my arms in times of stress. Again, I just, I was looking for some outlet mm -hmm. and I found that somewhat soothing, but no. So that, that wasn't, that wasn't suicidal. That no, was just like. A release, a something to feel something from, I, I had to numb so much of myself for so long that I could no longer feel like a genuine emotion. In, in Native American cultures, that's a tradition like that it? how they process grief Ooh, yeah i, I mean, didn't know that like mm -hmm. the warriors will go you know they in a, Africa a, a wife will lose her husband wow. to, to whatever and then she will actually you know mutilate her own arms wow. or these kind of things and, and mm. it's to help process the grief and yeah yeah so. it was for me it felt like in some kind of outlet certainly not healthy certainly not a an appropriate substitute for what i needed to do to process it but like it was something how did your sister deal with all this at the time 
She was two and a half years younger. My parents were shortly after this happened, my parents began the process of divorce. Mm -hmm. And so things were very chaotic in my household. And I think my sister, because she was still home and I was now in college away at school, she kind of bore the brunt of what was happening with my parents' divorce. I was now really detached from my parents, my mom especially. So, you know, I know she had a period of acting out as well. I think she got caught shoplifting once. Mm -hmm. She was working at The Gap, and I'm pretty sure she was shoplifting and got caught and gotten a lot of trouble for that. But I think everyone thought that we were just processing what was happening in my in my household with my parents. Nobody once assumed that there was something going on deeper. It was just, wow, your parents were married for 25 years, and now they're divorcing, and, like, that's got to be difficult to handle. Right. And there's a lot of cracks yeah. When, when the parents are not on the same page, I mean, the kids, there's a lot of cracks. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not, that part, it's not necessarily someone's fault. It's just reality. Yeah, it you was. Know? The cracks in my parents' marriage definitely started far beyond. But I do think that, you know, this situation had something to do with it. Um, I think they perhaps disagreed about how to handle it or disagreed mm-hmm. about how best to take care of me. And I think that's, you know, definitely a challenging thing in a marriage. Yeah. So what was this sort of recovery like? You know, in terms of like, w- when did you learn how to reinvent yourself from whatever rock bottom was, if there was a rock bottom or like, w- w- what did it look like? Because, you know, I, I see you now and it's, it's, it's different, Yeah, right? I clearly. mean, I, I wasn't there then, of course, but it's, yeah. it's one of those, I mean, let's get to the, the, the part of the journey where, you know, this is a very formative thing in your life, but you know, life does go on and you have to figure out how to make the most of it because you only have one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I spent the next five years addicted to drugs, so that wasn't it. Um, but I think about that time period as me just desperately trying to save my own life. I have a lot of empathy for the young girl that I was who didn't know what to do and didn't know how to process it and turned to drugs as a way just to like keep herself alive. And unfortunately, that situation turned into like a problem on top of the problem. You know, I was using drugs to kind of repress the trauma and then the drugs became the primary issue. But um, I did end up going to rehab for the first time in 1998 and managed to stay in my recovery for a year before I relapsed. Relapse is not an uncommon part of the journey. Uh, but it really caused me to to take pause and I don't I don't really know how I relapsed except in retrospect to, to realize that in that moment I had only stopped doing drugs. I didn't change any other aspect of my life. Mm-hmm. I just took away the drugs. So my friends were the same, my where we went and the kinds of activities we did, the music, to. everything. Mm-hmm. Everything was the same. We just took away the drugs and I like pretended and everyone just decided to pretend that like I was fine now, like I had been recovering from the flu and I was okay. And the second time around is when I I pulled myself out, I went back into outpatient therapy, entered my recovery for the last time. And that was the moment where I was like, if I'm going to protect this recovery, I need to change absolutely everything about my life. Every single thing about myself needs to change if I'm going to support this recovery. And that was when I started paying attention to what I ate. I started exercising and going to the gym. I met like-minded friends who also like to run and do yoga. I changed the music I listened to. I got rid of clothes. I moved. I got a new job. Mm -hmm. I started thinking of myself as this healthy person with healthy habits. And I started looking for evidence to support that. That was the moment that led to where I am. Everything means everything. Literally everything. So your your quote that I read was, the thing that made me a really good drug addict also makes me really good at taking on new habits. Yeah. Yeah. So what what part of the 
what part of your personality? How do you kind of I think that makes a lot of sense. It, yeah. <laughs> it does. You know, I when I got into drugs, I dove in feet first. I did not have a drug of choice. I was known as the girl who would just do anything. I would walk into a table and if there was something on the table, I would put it up my nose without even asking. And so I took that same energy into my recovery. It was like, I go, I go hard. And I have now over the last 21 years learned the idea of moderation, but then I didn't. And I decided that if I was going to be in recovery, I was going to work my recovery just as hard and as fiercely as I worked my addiction. And so, so was there like a moment where you're, you're looking at yourself in the mirror or you're outside and you know, what you describe as church now, or where were you when you're like, okay, everything, like what was the wallpaper in the room or what was the clouds in the sky? What'd they look like? I don't think it was a single moment. It was entering into recovery the second time, realizing that after just a few weeks of using again, that I was probably going to die this time. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have a lot of chances left. And thinking to myself that I had to believe that I was someone other than who I believed I was at the time. You know, I came out of this experience not having processed the trauma yet and still thinking that I was like unworthy and unlovable and that I was a bad person for the behaviors that I had done over the last five years. And I was like, that that was the first thing that changed because I decided that I was now a healthy person with healthy habits. It didn't matter that I had only been in recovery for an hour or a day or a week. That was who I was now. And that was the very first domino to fall. So you had to find this inside of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I had to believe it. But the way that I believed it was creating evidence to support that theory. So it was... I would just constantly ask myself, would a healthy person with healthy habits do this? Would they get up at 5 a.m. to go to the gym? Yes, they would. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Would they spend money on a new pair of workout tights instead of whatever, going out for friend, you know, with friends? Yes, they would. That's what I'm going to do. Would they you know, set a boundary with their best friend to say, you can't use drugs around me anymore. You can't ever offer it to me anymore. And if you can't do that, we can't be friends anymore. Yep, they would do that too. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like I've had buddies that have gone to AA and come out and, you know, they never smoked a cigarette in their life and now they're smoking a hundred cigarettes and there's yeah. kind of a trade-off. Yeah. Now you traded drugs for fitness. I did. So I did kind of in that it's really hard to take away an addiction and not replace it with something. And I will say in the beginning, I was very much like probably over exercising, probably overly compulsive about paying attention to what I ate. But because that wasn't the only habit I was adopting, because I was also thinking about, can I go to bed early? What does my recovery practice look like? Am I spending enough time with family and friends? You know, because I had all of these other things that I was thinking about to build this robust life of a healthy person with healthy habits, I never dove into any one area too deeply. So I never got entrenched in this like over-exercising and now I'm addicted to exercise or over-compulsive, you know, paying attention to what I ate. Like it balanced well because I tried to find this depth and breadth of habits to support my new lifestyle. And, and obviously some addictions are better than others. And, yeah. and, and they are. Yeah. But I really was careful. I didn't want mm -hmm. to do anything that would also numb or take me away mm. from the trauma that I was now back in therapy trying mm. to process. And that was really the key is that when I went back in this time to my recovery, I knew that I had to start unpacking my trauma, that yeah. none of these changes I was making were going to hold unless I decided to deal with that. I was going to ask you, what help did you have along the way? 
I was, I had such the blessing of being assigned a therapist when I was in rehab the first time, just the psychotherapist who happened to be on call that I ended up working with for the next almost 20 years. And he was the first therapist who would call me on my shit. He was the only one that wouldn't allow me to get away with talking around things or trying to manipulate him. Like he was the one who was like, no, you're, you're not going to do that here. And that was really like such a blessing because that was where I started working through what had happened to me. And that I think was mission critical in that recovery journey for the second time around. Yeah. You mentioned that you had to learn how to have empathy for yeah. the younger version of yourself. Yeah. 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 I don't think that empathy came until a lot later. Mm. There was still a period of time while I was unpacking all of this, while I was exercising and paying attention to nutrition, that I was still very hard on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, harder is better. More is better. No days off, no rest date, right? Like I was very much into the philosophy when it came to training and nutrition that I was going to like stay tough and be tough. And the grace and the softness didn't come until a lot later. But that's just another part of, you know, the journey, I feel like. Do you, yeah. do you consider yourself a perfectionist? I did for a very long time. I did. Yeah, of course I did. I expected a lot of myself. I saw emotion as weakness. I saw failure as weakness. So I would never try new things if I thought I wasn't going to be good at them, which limited my life experience quite a bit. Uh, but I know, no, I no longer think that about myself at all. But for sure, for a while I was. Yeah, because I mean, it sounds... It's like when you throw yourself all into something, whether it's, I mean, and this is a, it's not a direct parallel, but right before I joined the army, I became obsessed with preparing to join the army. Sure. Like it's all I did. Yeah. Right. And I wasn't old enough. I was 23, 22, 23. And I didn't really know how to do it. So I just wanted to do more. Yeah. Right. I will yes. run more. I will lift more. Every single calorie that goes in, I'm going to obsess over, right? Like measuring my life in, in scoops of protein powder, right? (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Like I did this and therefore this, and as if life was going to be like that. Yes. And I, I found setbacks really hard. Like sometimes I would get just I mean, I would, I would run 10 miles and lift for three hours and go swim for an hour and then go lift again. And then I would do yoga and then I'd like, didn't know how much to eat. And I thought I was full and then I'm starving in bed, trying to go to sleep. And my, and I'm like, then I'd go, I would literally go eat, you know, like two dinners at 10 o'clock at night. And I'm like, man, I, I, I ate too much and this isn't like just all of these things that are just irrelevant. But in the moment, it felt like I was kind of a setback or I was off. And then it's like, oh, I've got to get even stronger tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> right? yes, yeah. Like tomorrow's a new day. It's not just redemption. It's, it's a new day and it's going to be even better. So yeah. I, I just, I sense that same, like, I'm going to go all into this. Yeah. And what was a setback like, or how did, how did you process that? Cause I wasn't great at it. And eventually I just joined the army and it kind of like the, the answers presented themselves and that's where I needed to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in part for me, part of that was just a trauma response. It was that if I felt like I could control every aspect of my environment, then I wouldn't get hurt again. Right. I I spent so much time talking to my therapist about how many walls I had put up around myself and in between myself and others as a means of like protecting myself. And he always used to say to me, damn him, like 
oh, is it working? How's that working out for you? Right. And of course it wasn't because you can't control things like your emotions and getting hurt and other people's actions. And so I think in part, it was a trauma response. In part, it was because I didn't have a lot of empathy for myself. It was, I was still in that moment, like, okay, you went through this thing and you went through addiction. And like, I, I even would talk about my addiction. People would say like, oh, you've been in recovery for a year. Congratulations. And I would say, don't congratulate me. All I did was like pull myself out of like the hole I dug for myself to a standard of living that most people are able to achieve effortlessly. Like don't, I mean, how I would never say that to another recovering addict, but that was how I talked to myself. I couldn't, mm -hmm. I couldn't find the softness. I couldn't find the grace. And so my entire life was as you just described for a very long time. And again, it modulated over time and I had some life experiences, but you know, with setbacks, I would isolate. I would be even harder on myself. I would punish myself with the gym. I would punish myself with, mm. you know, food. Um, I, I figured out quite quickly that the ways that I was using food, like I used to use drugs to reward, to punish, to self-soothe, to comfort, like all of these discoveries ended up coming. Mm. But yeah, for a while, it was a lot like that. I think in part because it was a trauma response and in part because I hadn't learned to develop empathy for myself yet. And so when did that come? A lot later. It came a lot later. I spent, you know, many years doing CrossFit, uh, many years deeply involved in the CrossFit community, which is very much like that. Those are my people, right? It's the, you know, go harder, give a hundred percent work as hard as you can. I transitioned from CrossFit when I moved to Salt Lake city to training at Jim Jones, mm -hmm. where like the mind is primary. They are famous for just building unbreakable people, like robust people. And the reason is that every time you go in for your workout, they try to break you. Mm -hmm. And I'm training one-on-one -on -one with like a 235 pound man. Who's telling me to do something like, yeah, you're going to do it. And it wasn't until during that period, this is like, I'm now married. We have a newborn baby. My marriage is falling apart and we're about to get divorced. And my kid is like, not even one. It wasn't until things really fell apart that I realized that I needed to start showing myself some like grace and softness. What was that moment like? I remember being at a yoga event. We had gone to Costa Rica for a yoga uh, retreat and I was the keynote speaker and I was in the middle of my divorce and business split. I was trying to write my next book. Things were, you know, I had a newborn baby at home. I was going to be a single mom. I was trying to run this business at the same time. And I remember scrapping my presentation for the closing and doing something totally different and talking about how I had made myself so strong and so steely that I was now brittle. And that had, had I not begun the process of like trying to find some softness and trying to find some grace and recognizing that there is strength in that grace and softness that what I was doing would not have been sustainable. What I was doing was not sustainable. I was about to break. And I think that was the moment that I realized like, oh, we're going to, we're now we're onto something new. Like this is a new, that doors opened and like we're moving into a new time period for myself. Do you think that some of this just takes time? Like, do you think you were ready for that under any circumstance? No. You know, years and years earlier or? No. Because, you know, no. it's like when you, you talked before that you needed something when you were 18 or 19. And guess what? You're at whatever with 18 and 19 year old boys. You're just, it's not yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Like what part is just time and you're, you found your people and you got into a routine, the trust that you built for with yourself, you learn more about yourself and it just, it takes time is kind of what I'm 
it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot. Of, I did so much therapy. I have now been in therapy for the better part of like my adult life since I, you know, since I entered into recovery in the year 2000, I have been in some form of therapy ever since. And I'm doing a lot of work on my own. And the deeper you go to kind of unpack the trauma and then what was underneath that and then what was underneath that and and everything that's come as a result of that, the more I become aware of myself and the more I can see the pieces of myself that deserve that empathy and that deserve that softness. You know, this idea that like I was so hard on myself, but I was 16. I didn't know what I was doing. I did mm-hmm. the best I could and I was 21 and I did the best I could. So I think with time for sure, but also it needs to be paired with a willingness to self-evaluate and be self-aware and like pull out this shit in the bottom of the box that like you really haven't wanted to open, but like open it up and see what's in there. I think I think what you don't realize until later in life is that everyone struggles with something like this and it doesn't matter what their, their life looks like on paper. They will have been hard on themselves and they will have not had somebody, you know, be there, be the right person at the right time. Yeah. And it just, and it it does sometimes take time, but there's also some shortcuts that you can accelerate that. Like if you had had the therapist at a different time, you know, maybe, or someone actually saying, Hey, you are worthy, yeah. you know, and I just think of the the strength and the weakness as, as something really beautiful and, and, and something that our society is not really equipped to, to allow people to do very yeah. easily. You really have to work to get there. You do have to, you have to work. You have to be willing to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to like, look at your own stuff. But one of the things I've said over and over that I wish I could tell my younger self is that dealing with and navigating all of the things I've processed in therapy, like actually looking at my trauma, looking at how I felt about it and how I thought about it and how it changed me, looking at all of that was as difficult as it was, was so much easier than everything I had ever done to try to like run from it, to try to swallow it, to try to eat it. That was like so much harder and it hurt so much more. And I just, I, I grieve for the you know, 10 years that I lost to just swallowing it and eating it and trying to pretend like it didn't happen, Mm -hmm. knowing that there is this like redemption and resolution on the other side of just being willing to like sit with it. Yeah. Oh, you're making me cry. Yeah. It's, but it's like, if it's like that time when you just need to cry, you know, you just need to like, let it release and let it go. And and that's, that's part of that journey. Yeah, it really is. So therapy is kind of a, it's a word that you know, I come at this a lot, this this universe of, of trauma, more from the military veteran side. And yeah. what you learn when you study these kinds of things is that trauma is pretty universal. Mm-hmm. Like it, it leaves these enormous scars and you have to deal with them. And when you don't, when you repress them, bad things happen. Yeah. And, and therapy is seen as a form of weakness. And I'm trying really hard for us to get a, a narrative out there that the alternative is, is what? And is that, is if, if life's really good, is it working? Yeah. You know, these are things that we, we talk about a lot, whether it's business, war, love, or like, is it working? Yeah. Right. And so how, how does it evolve? How scary is it? Or was it, you know, the first time versus now you've not only seem to have made peace with being in therapy, but you, you seem empowered by it. 
Oh yeah. I, I, I don't think I ever saw therapy as a weakness, to be honest. Um, for whatever reason, maybe I just didn't know better and I wasn't exposed to like the social narrative, but I've always been pretty free talking about my therapy. Even before I had a public platform, I would at least be talking to family and friends about it. Like, Oh, my therapist said, or I'm talking about that in therapy. Um, I think it's one of the most badass things in the world to go sit in front of another human being and be like, here's all my shit. Mm -hmm. Here's all the worst stuff that I don't want to tell anyone. Here's the stuff I hate about myself. Here's the stuff that keeps me up at night. Here's like the most shameful piece of me. Like I'm going to throw this on the table and we're going to look at it. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Cause I, I, I know this and I wonder if you've, how much you do this as well. When Emily and I were going through a divorce, you know, before getting remarried, yeah. um, people would ask me things like, how are you doing? And what I learned really quickly was to make it go away I would have a certain narrative, right? I would say, hey, this is, it's really hard. You know, I've known her forever, love of my life. And then I'm going to be okay. And I, I really didn't believe that, but I, I just, that's what I learned to make it go away. I just, I didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, for me, it was just kind of the time had to pass and other things in life had to, I had to rebuild confidence and I had to, but I guess my, my point is, is in that time I was also building Go Rock and I was, you know, leading challenges and it was, you know, I was in business school and on paper, everything looked a certain way, yeah. but behind, behind the curtain, there was still all of this, whether it was the therapy of friends that I had and spending time with them or it was not this perfect kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, in this, you, you're, you're building a business, you're writing books, you're, you know, going through marital problems, divorce, you know, you're, you're dealing with custody stuff and, you know, raising a child and, and all this stuff. And how do you, I think it's, it's, useful to people out there to know that you can do multiple things while life isn't perfect oh, yeah. at all. Oh, and how yeah. did you navigate, <laughs> how did you navigate that? Like, what's it like behind the, the curtain? Yeah. So there was that period of time where I talked about the yoga retreat that I was in the middle of a divorce and business split. Cause my hus ex-husband was my business partner. I had a newborn baby. So he was like, maybe not even one at that point. I'm trying to run and grow this business. And we're in the middle of like navigating all of these challenging things. And it was hands down the most stressful part of my life. But I can also say in all honesty, it was one of the happiest. I had been doing so much therapy and so much of my own work. There's this process from a woman named Byron Katie. She has this process called the work where you kind of question your own stories about a situation, right? Not what's actually happening, but what you're telling yourself about what's happening. And I leaned on that process so heavily during this time period. And I decided that no matter what, we were going to go through the divorce, the business split was happening. I was still a single mom. I was still trying to run this business, but I could either choose to be super stressed and miserable, or I could choose to like find the happiness and peace in it. And I decided that I was going to use this as an opportunity now to tell myself, okay, you weren't happy in your marriage. There were things you weren't getting out of that relationship. And as a result, that trickled into everything you did. Now is your opportunity. You can have anything you want right now. You can build anything you want. You can be anyone you want. You can, I ended up not dating for a long time, but like in your next relationship, you can have exactly the relationship you want to have. And that was how I chose to get through that time. I didn't pretend like that bad stuff wasn't happening. It was still stressful and I still handled it head on, but I just decided to try to find 
like the light in it and the good aspects of it. And truly it was like one of the happiest years of my life. So how much of that was, was related to your passion for your work and whole 30 and let's talk about, yeah, a let's lot. talk about that. A lot. I've been doing whole 30 was founded in 2009. I've been running it by myself since about 2012 or 2013. It is truly my life's calling. It is what I was put on this planet to do in terms of like my work or my career. And I get so much joy from the community, from helping people find their, you know, food freedom and find success through the whole 30 and hearing their stories, providing resources. Um, it is like absolutely a joy. And so knowing that I was now going to like own this and could take the business exactly where I wanted to take it and grow it into this vision that I always had for it was also really energizing. So for folks that don't know, tell us what yeah. Whole30 is. Yeah. So Whole30 is a 30 day kind of, we look at it as a reset for your health habits and relationship with food. It is not a diet. It's not a weight loss program. It's not a cleanse. It's not a detox. It really is a way to identify how foods work for you in your specific environment. So we describe it as kind of a 30 day self experiment where you pull commonly problematic foods out for 30 days and see what happens to your energy, your sleep, your mood, digestion, your skin, aches and pains. And then you very carefully and systematically add them back in, in a reintroduction program and see what changes. And that lets you identify foods to which you might have a sensitivity or which might not work well in your system and, and foods that do. So food, yeah. let's, let's, I mean, it's so basic. You can't, go without food. It's not like booze. Right. Either, there's a lot of people that have issues with food. Like why is food such a thing in our society? Oh, so <laughs> many reasons. Like buckle in. So, <laughs> you know, part of it is right. the societal influence on food and, some, and I'll group alcohol into that category as well in that it's marketed to us as comfort, as reward, as the way to self-soothe. You know, you have a fight with your boyfriend, you grab a pint of, you know, Haagen-Dazs. Like it's, it's a very societally accepted and even encouraged way for us to numb and distract and self-soothe. And then when you add to that, the way that food manufacturers specifically design foods to be super normally stimulating, more stimulating than you can find in nature, sugar on top of salt, on top of fat, on top of crunch. And we are designed to like overconsume these foods because they have the micronutrition and the fiber and the water stripped out and their concentrated calories that are more bioavailable. And they lead us into this cycle of overconsume and then feel guilt and feel shame around that overconsumption, which leads us to feel stress, which brings us right back around to that overconsuming the same thing that we hate ourselves for, you know, doing. And then add to that the fact that food is modeled for us. Maybe our parents modeled this idea of dieting or focusing on weight loss and diet culture. And maybe they modeled it for you that every time mom and dad fought, your dad took you out for an ice cream. Like there's so many factors that go into our complex relationship with foods these days. So, so how do you, I think about this a lot because we talk about this amongst like ourselves because we have two different, like we're coming from two different places, you know, yeah. and we're, we're, we have this family now that we're trying to model healthy stuff. And sometimes I feel like talking about it less is better in yeah. some ways, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like when you obsess over it, um, you can, it can go and, you know, it, it's like trying to find that balance between I was just talking with a um, friend here that it's like, I do the 80-20. It's yeah. like, hey, we're mostly healthy 80% of the time. And then there's the, oh, you, you want to try that? 
Captain Crunch cereal. I'll let you try it. Yeah. Do you really like it? You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It's like this, I'm just curious that the, someone from, with your background and your experience and seeing all this, like, how do we think about this without overthinking it? It's really, really challenging for sure, especially as a parent. So, you know, I want, there are so many things I want to smack myself for saying before I actually had a kid about food <laughs> yeah. and kids. Like, oh, my kid would never eat that or I would never reward my kid right. with M&Ms. And now I'm just like, oh, that was a terrible, like you're a terrible person. Um, it is really, really challenging. And I do think that, you know, we do have to like unlearn so many of the behaviors that were ingrained in us as kids, by our parents, by the media, by diet culture. We have to disassociate our worth and value from the number on the scale or our body size. Like there's so much unlearning and re-awareness that has to build. And I really believe that a program like the Whole30 is a good way to start doing that because we do completely uncouple what's on your plate with how your body looks. Those that That's like not any aspect of what we do at Whole30. And I think that can be a good way to reset how you think about food. We don't want to think about food as just fuel because that's selling it short. Food can yeah. be love. It can be a way to bond and share and have family tradition and, and bring culture forward. So food isn't just fuel, but it also can't be the only thing you have to like nurture yourself or take care of yourself. So I'll, I'll start Food plus with, therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I'll start with this country and these people that I love in America, right? I, I love our country and I love Americans. Yeah. And, and yet I, I encourage people to go back to our roots as humans. And when you start to say, what is our relationship with food now? And is it working? Yeah. Right. Are we, if someone's really happy and I mean, just legitimately happy, they look at themselves in the mirror and they're happy. It's like, Let's not focus exactly so much time on, on them. Yeah. Like let's focus on the way that we were born, raised DNA of homo sapiens. I mean, the, the commonalities where you would share food and you would share defense, like that's what hunter gatherers and tribes would do. Yeah. And food was something that was not programmed as you got to wake up and have Cap'n Crunch and, and, you know, USDA, whatever, right? And then, you know, you got to have your snack in between whatever. And it's, it's socially acceptable, which is kind of like, it's kind of like socially, it's kind of like drinking, drinking 10 screwdrivers at nine in the morning is okay at the airport, yeah. but it's, it's not okay elsewhere. And so everyone's drinking, you know, screwdrivers at 9am in, in the airport. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying, examine these things in our brains and say, well, is this making me happy? Is this working? And you know, when, when you go without food or you see what your body is capable of, when you, when you go out into the mountains or you go through, in my case, some army training, or you go on these hikes and everything is on your back, or you do what Mike Leister did, right? The comfort crisis. When you go up, who's the reason that we, we connected and met, but you go up and you, you go on this 30 plus day hunt in Alaska and you're, you're seeing caribou for meat. Yeah. I mean, maybe not before you you take its life, but then it's, it, it turns into this is sustenance. This is how we came about. And so what I really like about your program and, and the way that you're approaching it is, I, I think it does need to be a complete reset. And I think that reset needs to start in our minds. Yeah. Like when we just become the sheeple that are, that are buying the marketing and the expectations of I've got to, you know, 
you know, I've got to get my money's worth at the buffet and I've got to, you know, eat, have a snack here and a snack here. And then lunch is programmed at, at noon. And then, you know, dinner's got to come at a certain time, but I got to, you know, get to dinner with a snack in between. I mean, look, that, that worked okay when I was working out 10 hours a day and it wasn't, and, and then I had other issues going on, right? It's like, well, you, you got to get to a root cause as well, but we, we need a reset. And, and that's what intrigues and interests me about your, your company and what you're, you're talking about. Yeah. My area of interest is habit research as a, probably no surprise given my addiction and my recovery, but I really dove in hard a few years after I entered my recovery into like, okay, what are habits and how are they programmed in the brain? And like, how was I able to, you know, overcome this one really, uh, you know, attached habit that I had and how was I able to form new ones? So there's a ton of habit research that goes into the whole 30. And I really, we really focus on people's habits and emotional relationship with food and the entirety of the program and the structure, the rules, the support that we offer, you know, the mindset checklist that we give you before you even start a whole 30 is like, okay, this is not like anything you've ever done before. You've probably dieted for weight loss. Maybe you've dieted for performance in the gym or performance, you know, in your art, in the army or some other form of like physical activity, but you've never done anything like this. And the mental aspects of the Whole30 are often far more challenging than the physical aspects of like, oh, I can't have my cheese that I like for 30 mm -hmm. days. It's like, is it working? Is dieting working? And you know, I've, I've loved following Michael's stuff as his book has come out. Yeah. He's just releasing more and more stuff. It's just solid reminders of that we are homo sapiens and where we are today, specifically in America. I mean, heart disease is what's gonna kill you, yeah. right? And that's a byproduct of, too much food and not enough exercise. I mean, this is, and not enough time outside and, and, stress, and, yeah. and all of these things, they just start to pile on. And if we go back and we say, Hey, all these things that aren't working. I mean, I don't know that everyone has to change absolutely everything. Like I'm, I like the bands I like, I'm going to listen to that music, Yeah. but we got to go back and question some assumptions every once in a while. And to do that, it doesn't really work to do that in our same exact routine over and over and over and over. Like you need a, you need a, Hey, you know, sometimes that's why new year's resolutions, which are always broken basically by six weeks later, something like 99% of them are all yeah. busted, you know? Yeah. People often try to take on too many changes at once, which mm -hmm. the brain like cannot process and it ends up goal switching. And number two, you know, one of the reasons why the whole 30 is so successful is because it is so incredibly detailed. Like I will tell you exactly what to do for this 30 day time period. And I've got a book that will walk you through it day by day. I've got daily texts that you can follow along. We've got this enormous, supportive, welcoming, accessible, inclusive community that will be with you every single step of the way. But big changes like that don't happen in a vacuum. It's really hard if you're the only one in your friend group and your community who wants to make these changes and nobody else around you is supporting that or encouraging it. And very often, they're also the ones who are like feeling defensive about you trying to make these changes and almost sabotaging your behavior. It becomes very, very difficult. Oh, come on, just finish this plate. Yeah. Why won't you do this? Well, yep. Why are you- Why are I you not drinking? Yeah. yeah people don't like to feed- you end up being a reflection of that person's less healthy habits. So me rolling up to the bar and ordering a sparkling water with lime, I don't say anything about it. I don't make a big deal out of it. It's literally just my order, but now it's causing you to take a look at your drinking and your relationship with alcohol. And people can become incredibly defensive around that, especially with booze and with food. So 
there's just, there's so much that goes into these changes. And every dietitian in the world is like, well, there is no one size fits all. You have to figure out what works for you. And everyone says, yes, of course, that makes Mm -hmm. sense. There is no one perfect diet, but like, how am I supposed to figure it out? And we really designed Whole30 to be the answer to how. Here is how you figure it out. And then after the program is over, I want you to eat exactly what you want to eat in a way that works best for you. You get to say, this food is still worth it and I absolutely love it and I'm going to keep eating it every day because I know how it impacts me. Or this food really messes me up, but it's my favorite and my mom makes it once a year, so I'm going to eat it anyway and deal with the consequences. Like Mm -hmm. it, It brings you to that place of true empowerment around food because you now have this experience of awareness. It's it's interesting to hear you say that because I, I, I guess it was modeled to me, but I've always thought like I control what goes in my body. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that's that's really confidence building. And the only place that it was really, really challenging to do that was when I lived abroad. Yeah. And there's just these cultural things and you have to sit down and drink the Inca Cola yeah. or the pig's blood soup. And I would just I'd had to navigate these and, situations. And then you'd faint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I'd had to like work hard to to still like not offend someone because it was it was yeah. a big deal. But when you think about that, that comes that comes from way back, right? That's something that was like encouraged to me from a young age. Like I I wasn't made to feel like I had to force you know, finish my plate or things like that. My parents were very sort of open and relaxed about that and let me make those decisions. And that's, I think what you're saying is the unlearning, you know, and that's, we've got to get to a point where people can say, I I can, I can do this, you know, I can control this. I I might need some help. I might need someone to support me and walk me through it. But, you know, I've, I've, I've done your diet before, sorry, I've done the whole 30 program before. I, I, I find it to be a good thing to go back to, you know, because it's not something you just do once (laughs) and, you know, forget about it. It's something that you continue to do. And and we've taken, you know, the aspects that we like most about it and just, yeah, applied it to our lives. Yeah. That's a great way to do it. And I, you know, I think you bring up a really good point, which is sometimes people's relationship with food comes from a place of upbringing and doesn't always come from a place of a privileged upbringing. So there are people who experience food scarcity as a kid who are now conditioned to finish their plates because they didn't have enough when they were growing up. Uh, There are people who come from specific cultural backgrounds who, when they, you know, discover that their traditional rice and beans may not work for them, have a very difficult time implementing change Mm -hmm. in their family unit. So it goes so far beyond, like there's, there's such a big discussion to be had around why our relationship with food is the way that it is. And it's so different from person to person. My grandparents were post-depression era, right? And then they raised, my parents were really young when they had me and they would raise my dad. Like, are you a member of the clean plate club? Right. Yes or no. And there's one right answer. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, then my dad would tell me, are you a member of the clean plate club? son, you're going to be a member of the clean plate club now. Yeah. You know, my mom was a little different. So I got sort of both sides of it, but there, there's all these things and you have to learn these about yourself. Yeah. Well, and it's not always easy because now, you know, on the whole 30, we talk about this idea in your food freedom of like, okay, if I think this, you know, donut is going to be worth it. And I take a bite and I realize I don't like it that much. And I know it's not making me healthier. So I'm not enjoying it. And it's not serving my health. Why am I going to finish it? Why would I, you know, and now you have to balance this idea of like, oh, but I hate the idea of wasting food. Right. Luckily, my husband loves donuts, so he will always take it. (laughs) There's other ways to save the food. There are other ways, but it can be really challenging when you start to put those sort of, you know, inherited values into your own relationship with food today. Right. Okay. So I want to kind of transition to like life as an entrepreneur. 
I mean, if you want to talk about how it's different as a female, that's great or fine. But I mean, what is, what is the entrepreneur's journey been like for you? I mean, starting from the beginning and then sort of getting your company and your vision, what's been the best part? What's been the hardest part? You know, what, what's, what's the, what's the journey been like? Um, I never wanted to run my own business. That was never anything I like set out to do or intended to do. I ran whole 30 as a side hustle with my, you know, very good stable insurance job for a really long time until I realized it had so much momentum that I either had to like jump into it and see if I could make it work or it was just going to fizzle out. So I jumped in 2010 and quit my job. I am a, I don't think I'm a typical CEO. I am not driven by profits. I'm not driven by like metrics of success. I don't, if you had asked me three years ago, how much money we made, I'd be like, I don't know. We have enough to pay the bills. We have enough to pay salaries. Like, I don't know how much we have in the bank. I don't know. I think we're profitable. I'm, that's not what moves me or that's not what drives me. I really care about our community and I care about the whole 30 being accessible to every single person who wants to do it. That's my goal is that I want everyone in the world who wants to be able to whole 30 to be able to do it, to feel welcome, to be represented in our community, to feel seen, to be heard, to feel included. And like, that's my barometer and it served us really, really well. It has. And I, I think that's wonderful. I'm really excited at how the program has grown, but it's not grown because I've been really focused on profits or focused on dollars or partnerships and for better or worse, like that's just not who I am. So community building then, yeah. I, I, which I can completely relate to. Yeah. Speaking though, Jason yeah. in my, in my love, love I mean, language. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> even though I was in business school and, and did that and it was kind of like, Go Ruck was a side hustle. I just never really yeah. It didn't work for me to just focus on trying to build a business. Yeah. I was just wanted, I always talked about building a brand and, and focusing on people and building a community and, and stuff like that. So let's, let's get into community building then. Cause I find that the most fascinating. Like what are, what are the pillars? Why? And you have a raving group of community fan base, you know, both it's, it's however we describe it, but supportive. It's, of supportive. Each other. Yeah. It's a, I mean, I'm, I'm, fascinated by your take on how you've done that. Yeah. You know, I think it starts with giving a lot of stuff away for free. We always gave a lot of stuff away for free. I would be, you know, I'd work my nine to five job. I would come home at night. I would write, you know, this really long, really well thought out blog post. And I would do that five nights a week. We gave the whole 30, the whole 30 is free, by the way, the entirety of the program is free. Mm -hmm. We'll always be free tons of resources, tons of support. Like I think the very first step is just giving stuff away for free. You know, that lets you test your material. It lets you find holes. It lets you see where you need to shore it up, the language, the voice you need to use. And that's how you build loyalty. And I think the number one aspect of any kind of community building is creating that trust. That mm -hmm. trust takes so long to create and to build and can be destroyed in like one partnership, one misstep. And so I take that so incredibly seriously. Anytime we think about a partnership or a sponsorship, or do I want to work with this brand? The only question we ask is like, is this best for the community? And if the answer is no, it doesn't matter how big it is or how lucrative, like we just don't do it. Mm -hmm. And that's really served us well. We have this fiercely loyal, just army of people who love the Whole30. They have incredible results with it. They proselytize. They want all their friends and family to hear about it. They stick around long after their Whole30 is over so they can support new people in their journey. And 
And because we've given so much stuff away for free, I think they do feel a loyalty towards the brand. And it's life-changing, you know? Well, to, it is. It that's has to the, work. That's well, the other piece of it. Yeah. Yes. You have to have something that's good. It doesn't matter how good your marketing is, how much stuff you give away for free. If the product at the base of it isn't good, then, you know, you're not going to have a leg to stand on. But the Whole30 is actually a really, really good program. And we've taken this community first approach. Mm-hmm. So how do you view it as Whole30, you... The, the trust building, the brand building, the community, it's, yeah. I mean, you're the face, you're the voice. Yeah. My journey and Whole30's journey are so inextricably entwined in that as I was finding grace and softness for myself and empathy for myself, the voice and the tone of the Whole30 program changed as well. Like we have really, if you look at the trajectory of my own writings and Instagram posts and musings and then the trajectory of kind of Whole30's voice where we used to be this like, here are the rules, do it for 30 days or go somewhere else. We like, it's not hard, figure it out now to this like very welcoming, very empathetic. Like we still, the program is still the program. We don't change, you know, we haven't changed or backed down on that, but the tone is far more welcoming and far more inclusive. So those two pathways are so closely linked. Um, I and mean, you're controlling both, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess so I am. <laughs> yeah. It, yes. And I guess so it makes sense that, but my team has kind of followed along with me as well, right? As we've learned more about things like diversity, equity, and inclusion and re- representation, like my team has also kind of followed along with that trajectory. But yeah, I mean, I guess it would make sense. I, I have always been the voice of the program. It is hard sometimes. I want the Whole30 to be able to stand alone because I won't be doing the Whole30 forever. And I want people to do the program long after I'm gone or if I want to, you know, work on a project outside of Whole30. But at the same time, I think people connect with a person more than they connect with a brand. And it's really nice that people still want to connect with me personally around the Whole30. So I'm still very deeply involved. I'm still very closely connected to the community. Um, And I don't see that changing anytime soon, even as the program continues to grow outside of me. Mm -hmm. So just for kind of frame of reference, I mean, what, what size team do you have? I mean, and anything about the, the business, just so there's some reference. Yeah, I have a really small team. I think we have 19 full-time employees and we do an so awful So really small lot. is one or two. Okay. So. <laughs> for, every, for what she does. Yeah. For everything we yeah. do, it's pretty small. And we have had a pretty big hiring boom in the last like three years. Before that, we were, you know, maybe down to like six or nine people doing what we do. Um, we have a small team and we stay really nimble. So I like the idea of the community saying, oh, this is a resource we're missing or me listening and hearing like, wow, they could really use more help here. And my entire team is able to pivot and kind of create that for them. Everybody works remote. We've always been remote. We've never had a home office. I've never wanted to limit my talent pool to having people only in, you know, the Salt Lake City area. So that was actually worked out great for us when COVID hit because we already knew what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And everyone is, you know, really very close knit. It's a very close team. I have only rock stars that work for me. They're all fantastic and deeply embedded and involved in Whole30 and they all really take a lot of ownership in the brand. I mean, I see you personally and I see a, a separation of, of sorts that I do as well. Something big will happen in the news in Palestine or pick your current event and this becomes something that you kind of dive into as you have throughout the course of your life, it seems. You dive into and you're very open about it and in a humble way. You're like, Hey, I'm curious to hear what our people think. Yeah, I do. But this isn't necessarily something that you would run through whole 30. Well, no, that's actually not true. Is it? We're pretty, 
We're pretty staunch advocates for social justice on the Whole30 channel. We decided a few years ago that we didn't want to run the business if we couldn't run it the way we wanted to, which was advocating for basic human rights for all. And so we've very staunchly posted on Black Lives Matter. We've done a huge uh, month for, we just did a, wrapped up a huge month for Pride Month. Mm-hmm. We are, you know, sharing posts for AAPI Heritage Month. We're very clear in what we stand for and and what we believe on the Whole30 channel. Um, not So I guess what I saw though, was I saw a lot of questions that you were asking mm. on your, your personal page. Yeah. I mean, and they were, and then you're like, whoa, I got some interesting answers on, on yes. this one yeah. about, I mean, cause you start talking about Israel, Palestine, that, that, that's been around for a long yeah. time. I guess and, my question, yeah, my question is like, who, who's, whose voice is it that yeah. like, whose stance is it? Is it the communities? Is it like, is it yours plus the communities? I, I think I get that you are asking the community what their thoughts are and you're processing that. Some, sometimes I am in areas that I don't understand. So the recent conflict and uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was one such area where I was like, there's a lot I don't understand here. I haven't dug in. I asked questions. I followed new people. I'm still halfway through a book from an, an Israeli Jewish journalist talking about the history going all the way back to the 1800s. So I really do try to dive in and learn the stances we take are very much our stances. So, and there are some things that even if the community disagrees, for example, on, I don't know, some of the anti-trans bills that are in legislature that we've taken a very strong stance against. If the community disagrees, it's like, well, this is what we stand for. We have LGBTQIA people in our community. Mm-hmm. We have Palestinian people. We have Jewish people. We have black people. We have Latinx people. Like we, we want to take a stand for them and advocate for them just as hard as we've advocated for everybody else. So it is a mix of both. And I do ask those questions on my personal page because as a brand, we I want to be careful before we speak. I certainly don't want to speak on something that I don't yet understand because that has the potential to cause real harm. So I'll ask those questions behind the scenes on my personal Instagram page where I do have a different following than the whole 30 Mm. and I am very closely connected and I have built a really strong, trustful relationship. So when I ask, people know that I'm asking from a place of good intentions to try to learn more. And if I do misstep, they tend to be very gracious and forgiving. What are the what are the biggest challenges with you know t- taking these stances that you find? Um, I mean, some of the challenges are just dealing with hateful comments mm-hmm. and recognizing that those comments represent like real people who perhaps really think like that, and that makes me very discouraged. The idea that there are others in my community that are reading these comments, these anti you know homophobic, transphobic comments, and the trans people in my community are reading those and being harmed. Um, I don't give a shit about losing business over taking those stances. Mm-hmm. I don't care one bit. If those are the kinds of people that are coming and that's how you're going to engage, then like you can either do the whole 30 quietly because I'll never, you know, keep that from anyone, gatekeep that. Um, or you can find some other program and community that works well for you. So like, I don't worry one bit, mm-hmm. you know, about losing business, but I do think about, and it does really bother me sometimes, some of the hateful, divisive comments that, that you can see when you do take a stand for something that I feel is like relatively reasonable, which is, Hey, I just want to advocate for like basic human rights for folks. Mm -hmm. You don't expect that to be radically divisive and yet it is. Right. It can be. Well, you know, social media doesn't help either. No. You can't really have these full on conversations, but you do a good job, I think. Of, I try. Of having a better conversation than most. I try, but you're mm-hmm. right. It is really challenging, you know, without that face-to-face engagement and mm-hmm. tone and body language. So, I mean, I think that there's, if you're really going to 
build a community, you can't, you have to have adversity. Like no matter what, you have to be able to talk things out. You, there has to be, if you're friends with someone and you're sitting across the table from them, you're breaking bread with them or whatever you're, you're doing, like all of the toxicity kind of that you'll find online and stuff, it's, it's like the real world is, is, is better. It's, it's harder to replicate that consistently on social media. It just kind of, it comes with the territory is what I'm getting at. Cause we've, we've done the same thing for various things over the last decade plus. And you know, haters going to hate man, like yeah. they're out there and sometimes they're bots. And if you got to tell yourself that person's a bot, that's making all this <laughs> stuff, like literally sometimes it is. And so, but to take it up a notch, my, my take is in community building, you have to, it's, it's inevitable. You, you take stands, you have discussions, like what are, if you're going to give another entrepreneur or anybody that's, that cares about community building, what's, what's kind of your top three points, your takeaways, your one big point, like how would you give someone advice on the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it to build a real real community. Yeah. I think the first thing I've learned is just to take nothing personally. I know that's in the four agreements. It's a Byron Katie philosophy, but it really is important. And I find that anytime I show up to a comment or a conversation defensively, like right out of the gate, I'm defensive and I'm angry. There's always something in me that like I need to look at. That's a sign for me that there's something inside that like I'm uncomfortable with, with me. And they've just like held up a mirror and I don't like it. So I think it's very important to take nothing personally. I really love the idea of taking a pause. If you read something or, or enter into a conversation with someone and you just want to like angry type back right away, don't, maybe just don't, maybe just take, you know, an hour or 24 hours and think about how you might want to respond. I really want people to, I want to listen to my community. You know, I've had entire conversations with someone where we end up on the other side, still not in agreement, but having listened to each other. And I found some new resources and maybe I've, it, they've given me some good food for thought, or maybe they've helped me solidify my position, but we've at least had a good engagement. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the last thing is learn how to, how to give a really good apology figure out how to apologize authentically and the right way. I have stepped in it so many times and I have had to learn how to show up for that like really solid apology without defensiveness, without excusing it, without the butt, without the, <laughs> you know. Anything that comes before the word butt yeah. is basically- Qualifications bullshit. galore. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I'm sorry, but. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. That just doesn't work. Or like the, I'm sorry, you were offended. Like, no, 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 no. no. We do not say that. No, I, I've had to learn how to craft a really like putting, like opening up my chest and being like, here's my heart. I'm really sorry. Mm -hmm. Okay. So from a business standpoint, when you see someone or a brand that 10 years later wants to hire a community manager because they want to focus on community, why does that not work? I mean, I think you can, I think you can do that. I think you can start with a product and build community around it obviously, because I'm sitting here at your table and I've really loved the Go Rock community. I have loved the tone, the inclusiveness, the number of clubs I've found, the women who rock tag. Like you've obviously, you start maybe started with a product or, and built a community around it. And you can do it that way for sure. 
you have to have a really good product and you have to be equally as invested in building that community as separated from growth and profits. Like you can't try to tie those two together. If you want to build a community so that they will give you more money, it's not, it's like always going to come across like that. Mm -hmm. You're always going to be selling. You're always going to be marketing. And sometimes you just need to show up and connect. You have to actually care yeah. about the people. Like that's do. the thing. And so I guess what what I was getting at is hiring a community manager 10 years later, if you didn't care until 10 years later. Yes, yeah. Right. And so, you know, GoRuck, what actually didn't work was we just had a product for, you know, and it, it happened fast. A couple but years, yeah. For, no, not I mean, even, the, not the even. first yeah. GR1 came online May of 2010. And it was like, oh, everyone's going to, this is awesome. Everyone's going to buy this. The world greeted me with silence. Nobody sure. bought anything. And then September 26, 2010 was the first Go Ruck challenge. And that was people coming together, 15 or 16 of us in San Francisco, going around the whole time for however long. And then in the parking lot by the ocean for hours afterwards, just kind of soaking it in. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. And for forever, I mean, I'm probably could have built a better business if by business school standards, if we would have said, okay, Here's the rucksack. Well, you know, let's just talk about this thing over and over and over. It just, it's boring. I don't find it that interesting. Despite the fact that I spend a ton of time on the gear side, the people have always interested me more. Yeah. And that's exactly the vibe that I've gotten from you that you're confirming. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you have to much. do the people first. And if you, you have to just give, and that's, you know, we're sitting in Jimmy Letchford's house right yeah. now. You know, he was, <laughs> he was really, really you know, one of those guys in the, in the CrossFit community that just all he, he was like, Hey, you just got to give to the community. Yeah. And, and then that will build the community. I guess th there's no silver bullet. You got to live, you got to live the life. You got to walk the walk. You do. You really do have to care. You really do have to be focused on making sure that you are serving the community first. That's got to be sort of your first order of intention. Um, and you, you know, one of the things I say is that I've never had a good idea in my life. I've only had ideas by listening to the community. You tell me you want something and then we go do it. And I think that's really important. It's not just important to be involved and build community and give them things. You also have to listen. You yep. know, maybe you think you're on the right track with offering this resource. And they're like, no, we don't need that, but we could use this other thing. Like what's then, an example? Uh, you know, we offered for a while a program geared towards moms, right? We had a whole mama's kind of club for new mothers, people who were trying to achieve pregnancy or people who were pregnant and who wanted support, not just through their whole 30, but healthy lifestyle, healthy living. So we created it with our in-house registered dietitian. And what we learned from listening to the community was that that was a super helpful resource and it's still available, but they wanted a broader definition of family. They didn't just want us to serve pregnant people. They wanted us to talk about all sorts of families in all sorts of configurations and in all sorts of wherever they were in their kind of family trajectory, wanting to be a family, grandparents raising grandkids, like they wanted everything, chosen family. So we kind of slowly put the whole mama's community aside and we created this whole families hub on the website now. And now it's full of more robust content geared towards all aspects of family. It's more inclusive. And that was kind of one such example of like listening to what our community wanted and giving them more of what they wanted. 
Yeah, I can, I manage our community, but it's all yeah. about this listening. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, like you said, there's so many good ideas that bubble up and that you, you would never have even considered, but it actually can apply to a lot of different people. But I like this idea that you just broaden the scope. Yeah. Well, there's also something to be said. So I, I sent a DM to go rock and I was like, Hey, my plate carrier is like a little stiff. I'm not sure you answered me, you, Emily, <laughs> and you're helping me figure out how to fit my plate carrier. And I, I think do. I even sent you a picture of you it did. on me. Like, does this look okay? <laughs> that means something. Mm-hmm. I, it didn't matter. I didn't know who you were no, at the yeah. time and it didn't matter who you were in the company. Mm-hmm. But like, what matters is I talked to a real person named Emily and she helped me fit my plate carrier. Yeah. And like, people remember that <laughs> there is something to be said for that actual human connection, which is on social media, that's about as close as, that's as, as it close gets. you get. Yeah. <laughs> so it, there's magic yeah. in that. And, and so when you start looking at what I, the business world that I see, because I've had to straddle a little bit more towards the, the finances from time to time, is the marketing folks get so focused on, I've got to run this ad and I've got to see what the return is. Like, what's my exact correlation between a Facebook ad and a conversion? <laughs> and is this working? And if it does, then you do a little bit more. And if it's not, then you try a new ad. And Facebook's sitting there just waiting to say, oh, yeah, you really messed that one up. You definitely want to try this just a try, little try different. Try this new algorithm. Just keep spending, you know? And, and so if you're not willing to put faith in the people that you're serving, then why are you in business? Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you don't, Just if you, if you the don't, Facebook ads don't care about, don't yeah, they care don't about care. Them. And if you're not, if you, if you have no trust, if you, if you are not willing to just say, look, I believe in what we're doing. And I believe that these people, they matter to me. And that's a good, healthy way to build a sustaining movement, revolution, business, yeah. and to feel really good doing it. I mean, and what's you're, the and you're point? believing it based yeah. on these interactions you're having with people. Yeah. You're having conversations with people and they're telling you this really changed my life. Yeah. This really helped me. This didn't help me, you know, all these things. And that's what's, that's, what's driving the changes. I mean, yeah. I think there's also one really important thing that we obviously have in common, which is I live it. Mm-hmm. I eat, sleep, and breathe every single thing I talk about on social media. I eat, sleep, and breathe Whole30. It's been part of my life for 11 years. I'm ad, you know, actively working my food freedom. I talk about it all the time. I didn't share about Go Rock until I had been rocking for a month and realized that like this was now a part of my like forever life. So I, I am careful about what I talk about knowing that I have an audience who's deeply connected and, and I have that trust and loyalty, but like there's nothing I'm talking about or no piece of advice that I'm ever giving that I'm not also doing myself. Mm-hmm. You will inevitably make mistakes, but you learn over time. I'd rather not have to issue that apology yeah. for this <laughs> snake oil, whatever <laughs> thing, you know? And so let's, let's transition to the comfort crisis and Mike uh, Leister and how we, how that's how we linked up. You yeah. know, we're friends with Michael. He stayed with us at our house, you know, our, our youngest son who you met before he was, yeah. you wake up screaming about alligators yeah. and doing all this <laughs> stuff. And Michael later told me, he's like, yeah, you know, I like to stay with people if possible. Cause it's in those moments in between when you, you figure out if they're actually who they say they are yeah. and all this stuff. And so he's become a really good friend of ours over the course of, I mean, almost a decade with me. And he wrote a book called The Comfort Crisis, which he sent to you. He did. And this is about this hunt that he took in in Alaska 
and the training that he went through and the need to get outside of our comfort zone yeah. and why that's lacking. And, and first of all, I, I know you're in the same boat and saying everyone should read it. Yes. I, I almost never accept kind of advanced copies of books because I'm a super avid reader. I read like most people breathe and I take my recommendations like they are life and I do not put my name behind a book unless I honestly feel that good about it. So I'm always nervous when people want to send it because I'm like, oh, if I don't like it, I'm not going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I was intrigued by the um, subject. I had read a few books on the idea of kind of making yourself uncomfortable. I, I subscribed to it. I had been over a year into taking a cold shower every morning. Like I was into it. I could not put that book down. It was <laughs> like nonfiction that read like the juiciest fiction I've ever encountered. It was, and like before I was even done, I ordered my go rock. I ordered my plate carrier. That was like how invested I was in Michael's book and, and the philosophy and like everything about it. So I know Michael's going to listen to this. Any other big plugs <laughs> for Michael who I'm grateful to. Oh my God. I've talked but. about him so much. I think he's, he's like single-handedly, you've sold a lot of books for me. And I'm like, great. Cause everyone needs to read this. What I love about the comfort crisis is that, you know, there are a lot of people who are you know, they're still sedentary. They're not moving yet. They're not eating healthy yet. Like they want to make those changes. And like, what I loved about this book is that you don't have to go carry a thousand pound elk through Alaska. You can just throw like 10 extra pounds on your back when you walk the dog. And I want it to be that accessible for people. That's what I love the most about rucking is that it is completely accessible. Like if you go on walks, you can ruck. And so I love the message that he had for all of us. You, you did a great post on that, by the way, I think with talking about how you got into rucking mm-hmm. and how, how it is accessible and that if you're, you know, a mom walking the dog or you're, you know, a grandma or, you know, a guy that's been sedentary that you can just start with five pounds or 10 pounds. I even liked how you said like, please, for the love of God, don't, don't start, start running. Don't start with the 30. <laughs> don't yes. start with the 30. <laughs> oh my, why you is know? the 30 weigh twice as much it as the 20? So that's what I want to know. much more. <laughs> there is an exponential feeling to a rucksack. Mm-hmm. You, you reach a certain point, I mean, between 45 and 75, it's not as big of a jump as 75 to 100. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of, I, I don't know, I can't quantify all of this perfectly, but it's it's relative to your body type and where you are. And, you know, overall, I mean, women's bodies are, are different. I mean, men have broader shoulders, yeah. which when you put a rucksack on is useful yeah. in terms of absolute amount of weight that you can carry. That said, you know, when you look at the case for women, women's hips are wider. That leads to greater injuries while running, mm-hmm. right? Because the knee strike is is different and, and that ripples up. And, and then there's also, you know, bone density is is a real thing. And so resistance and getting outside and and everyone needs that. Yeah. But you know, we we have struggled to kind of translate rucking to women in a way that you have been very successful and you're not off-putting to men. I mean, it's it's one of those things like you've asked questions in your kind of humble way of asking questions, which I find such a there's such a breath of fresh air to it. Oh, thanks. This day and age, because everyone's always got the answer and everyone's always, you know, asking snarky questions or something or and you've just asked legitimate questions that I, I've looked at. And I'm like, man, we need to do a better job well, you did. of answering yeah. those yeah. questions. But yeah. you're you're out kind of leading the way on females and rucking, which to me, I mean, you know, we have a nine-year-old daughter. America needs strong, empowered women out there. Women need to be 
active. Women need to get outside. Women need ways to kind of form communities and do all these things. And so I've, I've really enjoyed your, the questions you've asked, the, the solutions you've come up with, the ways that you've presented it, the ways that you and your dog Henry have been out, yeah, out yeah. In, in, you know, nature and, and just kind of, it, it's yeah. become part of your routine. And so I think that's what I love about it though, is that like, I will throw my 20 pound plate on in the gym and I will do like a burpee step up, like rock workout. Right. And I will work hard. Like I can do pushups with the 20 pound plate now, like rad. And then I will also throw it on to like walk my dog to the local park and throw the ball with him. And I like that you can do both. And I think sometimes if a woman looks at maybe some of the other rucking content or they just look at one or two posts on your site and they see the challenges or like the really difficult, like the hero kind of workouts that you have, it can be a little intimidating. And I ha- I just want to be out there like, no, 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 I'm going to like go get the groceries in my rucksack. Like you can, you can do this in any level or at any capacity you want, but it feels really badass. And I want you to have that experience. I want you to walk the dog and feel like a badass because you've got 20 pounds on your back. Yeah. So we've really struggled as a brand. There was a time where I tacked to the middle, right? To be more accessible is, is probably the, the, the doctrinal term. And it just didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And so we, we've had to kind of go back towards more of the, hey, special forces roots. And rucking is, by the way, the foundation of special forces training, right? Now you can scale rucking from five pounds to 125 or 30, which was the heaviest that, that I have, which is just crippling. Brutal. Like don't do that. Yeah. Right. Um, but you can scale it to anything. We just as a, a business and a, as a brand kind of gone back to those roots and we're, we're building on top of and around that. And Michael's book has been a great case for, for we're born to carry, yeah. we're born to rock. And, you know, the way that you and your brand are, are positioned, you're, you're inherently and naturally more accessible. Like, you know, there's a symbiotic relationship to, they're going to trust you more then they would trust us if we tried to tap to the middle sure. and everything were kind of, yeah. you, you know I mean? These are just things that we've learned over the, the last decade. And so there is a note of, hey, this is really cool to see you you empowered and feeling like a badass rucking 20 pounds to the store, which is by the way, what we started advocating at the beginning of COVID yeah. when, oh, you can actually go outside and walking is in and outside is in yeah. and rucking is something that you can incorporate. And it's been- it's yeah, cool. I just yeah. like to say thank you because I think it's if you're getting, you know, just because I want people, we want people to be more active and yeah. more, you know, feel better about themselves, yeah. you know, and, and if it means, you know, getting outside more, being more active, eating healthier, you know, it's like, that's the goal. Yeah. Here. Well, and then what I'm hearing is people who are like, okay, I bought the 20 pound and I'm going on walks, but like now I'm looking at the go rock challenges. Do you think I could do something <laughs> like that? And I'm like, yes, you could. Yeah. Yes, you could. And so that is like, that's the momentum that I want to build. It's this idea of like making mm-hmm. yourself uncomfortable and sitting in that discomfort yeah. makes you realize that like other things that are uncomfortable. I can probably do that. Do you think too. you could do a go rock challenge? It's. I wondered if you were going to ask me that. Oh, I have such conflicting feelings about it. So it's definitely even before I read Michael's book, that was the one like challenge I had in my head where it was like that would be the thing that I would want to do. That would be the really hard thing. It's not a Cirque series mountain race. It's not like I church my church my mountain hiking is like sacred. I don't want to mess that up by like turning it into a race. But I wonder if I could do a go ruck challenge. And then sometimes I think to myself, like I survived trauma. I quit heroin. 
I don't know that I necessarily like need to prove that to myself Mm -hmm. in this moment. So I go back and forth between like, do I need to do this really hard thing to remind me that I'm like a total badass or am I like, am I just happy doing what I'm doing? So I, I haven't really landed on it yet, but now you've invited me, so, so I, think I have to think about it. Sometimes there's an auxiliary reason, too. Yeah. You know, you want to honor someone or some moment in yeah. time, and, and or you just want to, you're curious about what kind of people come out and do those well, kind of things. Well, that I think, <laughs> I think I would love the community, but I, I do think, think there's also still a piece of me that's like, I don't know if I could do that. It looks so really So first hard. off, you, you can. You totally Second could. off, <laughs> part of our mission statement in building better Americans is, you know, you talked about Whole30 being this kind of journey that you've walked and it's mirrored your life. Yeah. And so for me, you know, I was pretty broken as a, as a person transitioning out of the military, lost my job, lost my mission, lost my purpose, lost my wife, almost lost the dog. Greatest thing, except for when we eventually had kids together, she, she's like, looked at me and she said, Hey, you need the dog more than I do. I mean, it's not because I was in a position of strength, but she was right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, GORUCK very much became that bridge between the military and the civilian worlds. And so inviting people to cross that bridge with me, we were building it together. Yeah. And that was really kind of this idea of America talks so much about so few people serve and nobody can understand them. And like, it's like, it's a, a death sentence, you know, and I, I find it very destructive. And so since the, the very earliest days of, of GORUCK, the goal has been to just live the life of building that bridge and inviting people to join us. And so, you know, there's New York City 9-11 where it's the 20 year anniversary or there's Mogadishu Mile that's like talking about Somalia or there's- The you know, Chad oh, workout. Yeah, yeah. The, there's the Chad workout, which is not the GORUCK challenge, but there, there's other ways to just kind of honor, honor things that we can kind of forget sometimes. Yeah. So you can, you can throw down a challenge to me and I'll accept and, and I'll accept when, when you accept the challenge. So. I like it. Well, I mean, now that I'm sitting here, I kind of have to, I feel like I knew you were going to ask me, but yeah, I've, I've been thinking about it for a long time. I actually, it kind of just came up. I, I didn't have a. Oh, I suspected that you would though. I suspected. Yeah. Okay. So kind of, as we kind of wind this down, your, your big goals in life for yourself, for whole 30, for, you know, you're recently married, remarried, I should say. Yeah. And like, you seem to be doing great. Yeah. Is I this, really am. is this where you are in life? Cause it, Thanks. you're exude that. Yeah. I am. I'm really happy. I'm continuing to work on my own personal growth, like always, right? That's something that I, I'm always interested in. Um, I'm starting to talk about some things outside of Whole30. I have been for a while on my Instagram feed and through my podcast, but just other topics that are very tangential to Whole30, but not necessarily food-centric. So addiction and recovery, trauma, relationships, boundaries are a subject I talk about often, self-care, entrepreneuring, you know, just personal growth and therapy, those kinds of topics. Um, my personal website actually just launched this morning. So that's wow. an area where I'll be able to share thoughts that are kind of outside of Whole30 and, and more along my own personal kind of musings. So, and then I still have big goals for Whole30, you know, not everyone in the world has done one yet. So we're not done. We want to continue to build out our Whole30 certified coach program. We want to continue investing in clinical partnerships just to elevate the reputation of the Whole30 with medical doctors and registered dietitians who are doing the program with their clients and patients. So yeah, we, we still have big plans. I'm not ready to give up Whole30 anytime soon. <laughs> I, I'm just... Glad to have met you and like, it's, it's so nice to actually 
get to know someone in person and have them match, you yeah. know, <laughs> on the online persona. And so I, I didn't think it would be anything otherwise, but it is always just really heartening to me. Yeah. So last question then, what's your sort of ad- advice to whether it's the next generation, it's women, it's entrepreneurs, it's people, it's, you know, what, what are the, there's no silver bullets in life, but what, yeah. have, what have you unlocked? What do you want to share with the world? I want to share the idea that the more I use my voice, the more powerful I feel. That's it. I find safe spaces to use my voice and maybe that's a small space. You know, maybe it's just with friends and family. Sometimes I find ironically that sharing with total strangers just feels easier and it's easier for me to be vulnerable. Right now I have a pretty big platform and I share pretty unapologetically, but the more I use my voice, the more powerful I feel and the more feedback I get that that gives other people permission to use their voice is very affirming. So that would be it. All right. Well, where can we reach you? Yeah. You can find me on Instagram at Melissa U and my new website is Melissa And launched all things whole 30 are just, yeah, just launched <laughs> yeah. today. So exciting. Wow, big day. Um, and then all things whole 30 are just at whole 30, the W H O L E and the number three zero. Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much for yeah. taking the drive over and coming to meet us face to face, which is been... old school and awesome. <laughs> I love it. We can do that now. Yeah. I know. I just, I have to say that, you know, once every two or three years, I find something that just clicks with me so hard and I feel is truly life-changing. And Michael Easter's book and Finding Rocking has been that thing for me um, this year. So I'm just absolutely thrilled to meet you in person. And I can't wait to continue to share the gospel of how I feel about rocking. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. So Melissa has left the building. What'd you think? I thought she was great. It's always just really nice when, you know, someone like her, she's got a, a substantial following on Instagram and a big personality on there. I, I, I follow her. I, I enjoy her post but it's really nice, I think, when you meet someone in person and they they match with that. You know, she's she actually is like a big time reader, and she enjoys hiking and 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 going on these solo hikes. And it's not just you know, it's not just for the photos. You can when you dig a little deeper, and and you know, I think most people are real like that. You know, when you meet them. But it's just, I think it's nice when it lines up. Yeah, I mean, I I thought she was great too. The whole Instagram thing, it always kind of it's a facade of sorts and you just never know. And I'm, I'm interested in peeling back a lot of those onions. So, you know, after we stopped recording and before we're recording now, you know, we chatted with her about promoting some, some of this stuff. Cause I didn't, didn't want to put her on the spot for this or that, but you know, the Chad 1000 X veteran suicide prevention, you know, she's, she's, on, she's doing it. She's doing it, right? And and getting people yeah. behind it. It's awesome. And you know, it's it's about mental health and through fitness, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's already training, doing yeah. all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And and you know, her story is is remarkable, but it's also relatable, I think, to a lot of people. And she's doing a really good job to talk through talk through it let people have like the space and, and she, like, you know, you can tell she's someone who, who thinks about these things and, and there's, there's a depth and there's a, an intention with it while someone, while she's also, you know, building her business, but there, there's something, there's something real there, which I think is, is important. It's not just some sort of fake glamour, right? I mean, there, there's real substance 
That, that's what I, that's what I saw, you know, sitting kneecap to kneecap, the, the three of us. And, you know, there's, there's real substance behind there, which is, it's, it's in fact kind of refreshing Yeah, it's great. because it's, it's not like, oh, the right haircut and the right season. Yeah. I mean, and, and let me tell you, like she and I messaged with each other on the DMs and Instagram and that was, that was great. And, you know, had some good chats there. And then we told her like, Hey, we're coming out to park city. Would you like to do this in person? And she was like, yeah, which is great. You know, I mean, if it hadn't worked out, I understand, you know, schedules and all, but you know, she was really accessible. And then, you know, last minute we gave her a Frago <laughs> fragmentary order on the, the location because our Airbnb was just not cutting it. <laughs> but you, you know, we, we were at, we're at Jimmy's house. It was a house. war zone for construction half the time yeah, at our Airbnb. Was, <laughs> we could not sleep there, but yeah, but you know, we, we ended up at Jimmy's house and you know, she was, she was just rolled with it like a champ. And, and then, you know, she, she gave me a recommendation on where to eat when I'm in Park City and I'm like, well, the whole 30 woman <laughs> just gave me the recommendation. I'm going to go to it. And it was, <laughs> it was great. It was a great meal. And it turns out, you know, where we're, where we're spending half our time here, um, you know, camping at Jimmy's house that they loved it too. In fact, their two children, their two oldest children used to work there and they're friends with the owner and it just, it all just kind of came together. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I actually have been talking about this. I think you and I need to do the the whole 30 program for wow. real. All right. <laughs> I'm going to miss my smoothies. So I, <laughs> I'm into weird challenges from time to time and you don't uh, say, <laughs> you know, weird from the standpoint of like, try something new, right? Break the mold every once in a while. Just, just change it up. There's a lot of value in doing that. Give something up for a while. Just, just, you know, just break the mold. Just yeah. try something new. So yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. I mean, I got I got to choose wisely when, right? Yeah, we no, got to figure that out. No coffee, no sugar, no <laughs> beer for 30 days. <laughs> I think days. this might be harder for you than me. It's it's fine, but, you know. Uh, cool. Yeah, she was awesome. I'm really glad that she and um her team at Whole 30 are going to be training for for Chad and looking to do some more cool things with her. All right, so it, it was really fun. Thanks to to Melissa for coming out and doing face to face, which is always super nice. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one.